take about 25 minutes and have time for questions. If there are any questions about the talks, about taking the practice home, or generally about Buddhist <coughs> practice that come to mind. And if you do, make sure to speak up, speak up loudly um, so everybody can hear you. This is kind of a big question, but it's something I understand and then I lose it, I think. Um, how and why do you drop the stone? Well, I guess I know why, because it's <laughs> painful to carry it. How do you drop it? Well, you know, in the, the way that Ajahn Chow was talking about it, at least in that story that he used, you kind of, uh, initially, you don't drop it because it makes sense to drop it, because it, it doesn't make sense to drop it because we're so identified with our problems and our worries and our, what we're identified by definition, really. But what happens is either sometimes we, you know, just in a playful way or we drop it and we notice that or it gets so heavy we're so exhausted by our attachment our identification that in exhaustion we put it down but one way or another we have to bump up against the experience of the mind free of attachment and not only does it have to happen but we have to be aware of what that is so that we notice sort of know directly in our own experience what a relief it is. So then when we pick up attachments in the future, there's that intuitive wisdom that's suspicious about attachments to some degree at least. You know, and stories are helpful. You know, even the story about <coughs> dropping the stone, it kind of begs the question in our mind, what am I holding that I don't realize I'm holding? I remember one of the more clear times my mind just dropped the whole sense of self and uh, you know I was just doing my practice and uh, and investigating my mind and you know looking at things being known and curious about known by what and at some point the mind just uh, released something it didn't know it was holding and it was a tremendous relief but a moment ago, it didn't seem like there was a big thing I had to let go of. It just seemed like actually I felt pretty good. And uh, so that's often the way it is. Yeah, Jenna. Um, kind of follows up on what Jean asked, uh, which is how do you know that uh, in, in our small group, BJ talked about, um, or we talked about putting down the question, and that made me, like, made a lot of doubt arise for me, like, oh my god, I've been doing everything wrong, because, you know, so much of what is driving my practice is this kind of wanting to know, wanting to figure it. I mean, obviously, as I'm saying wanting, I realize, like, ah. So maybe I've answered my own question. You know, it's like, it seems like that kind of, you know, inquiry 
can be wholesome, but also can be a cause for suffering. And sometimes I'm really confused about, you know, do I need to just drop this and not figure it out? What needs to be known and what doesn't need to be known? <laughs> well, sometimes wanting to know something, what it teaches us is like we don't need the to answer the question. So that doesn't mean it wasn't useful. You know, sometimes we have to get involved with something to understand that we don't have to be involved with it. So we should never think, you know, that I've wasted my time. I mean, maybe theoretically it's possible to waste our time, but I'm not sure that's a useful story. It's like another drama that I'm wasting my time. And the more, a better question is like, what can be learned both right now, but also in hindsight from how we have been, how we have been relating, what can be learned from that? What has that, what is that revealing? What is that saying about the nature of things? When we look back on our life, for example, and we remember, like you just did, oh, I've been wanting to figure things out for a long time. What does that teach me? I mean, what is that telling me? What of that? is skillful leading to release, what of that was not skillful leading to more entanglements and more weight? So, you know, to some degree there's a lot of trial and error. Even when we're getting good teachings and good pointing outs, there's still a lot of trial and error involved with it. But I do think, you know, there's a place for study. And especially for lay people, it seems like... um, because we don't have this, you know, the ideal container for our lives, the, the study, you know, kind of working with the ideas of the practice keep us in the ballpark a little bit where we might be able to learn from our, not just our successes, but also from our mistakes, like when we're really attached. And then having the teachings proximate and being really attached, you know, we connect the dots. Oh, yeah. This is what he was talking about. You know, the mind's really attached. I'm all worked up. It really hurts. You know, can this be put down? And just to hold that question, can this be put down? Is there something that can be put down? And then, like, even with that story we had last night, we can look at that dynamic of, oh, isn't it interesting that the mind's afraid to let go of this? Why is the mind afraid to let go of this fixation? What is it getting? What is it... What is it thinking? You know, so we're really investigating in that way. So I think inquiry is really good, but it has to be inquiry not based on I'm a stupid human being who wants to be enlightened, but inquiry based on wanting to understand the cause and effect dynamic in our minds right now. Uh, Yeah, Amy. Um, I just... Who was the other person involved? Uh, I think her name is Sue Lou. I'm lying now. No, I, you know, I was saying, um, um, I wanted to put in your card, you rock. And, um, <laughs> and I, I, said, I said to Cindy Lou, I said, um, would that be, 
that be the wrong thing to say? But now I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about, well, okay, maybe not. But um, what I'm really thinking about is all, you know, right, right speech and all the things that we say and how um, you rock is just, you know, a vernacular of, uh, that, that, you know, is, is kind of a metaphor I'm getting to, but <laughs> um, it, it's just that, you know, making somebody something hard like that or um, um, all these things that we call each other, all these things that we think with how hard they are and how they're just, you know, I don't know, I don't know what my question is, but it just seems to me that you could second guess yourself all the time. And, um, is that, that, that in itself would be Hika. Yeah, well, the second guessing definitely can be dukkha. And words matter, but intentions matter more. So I wouldn't worry too much about the words. They do matter, but just keep looking at the intention behind the words. And uh, there's some people who are really inarticulate, but their intentions are really pure. And their lack of, our, uh, lack of being articulate may you know, get in the way in some mundane sense in the world. But people generally catch the purity of the intention behind the words and appreciate that. Yeah, Dia. Um, I've been practicing for a number of years with like letting go of the narrator and and trying to get closer or, or being. Um, so yesterday I was enjoying the just the the pure quiet and peace in mind and. And then I have sort of occasionally have this word like, well, what's going on now? Or this is samadhi or um, this is impermanence. You know, something of the fourth foundation nature. But then I want to be mindfully letting go of those words. I don't want to like, oh, that's what this means or that's how that feels. And so there's, I'm kind of feeling a little conflict in the teachings of experience it non-conceptually without describing it to oneself and also at the same time the teachings well what's going on and what's the flavor and then then looking for mental you know words to describe that or would you advise more just kind of dropping some of those words and, and really getting into the experience yeah that's a inevitable problem in practice because we we set impressions in the mind, dharma impressions in the mind, dharma um, habits in the mind to, you know, using language to help shape uh, or direct the attention in appropriate ways. And then as the practice becomes more subtle, those used to be good habits aren't helpful anymore. They're actually counterproductive. And we actually have to see them just like you would see a more obvious defilement you have to see that Dharma coaching as a kind of defilement. You know that image that the Buddha used about uh, building the raft across the stream, but you don't carry it around with you when you don't need it. You leave it alone. And so when we don't need that part of the mind to be directing, orchestrating the Dharma practice, then we don't need it. And we really need to let it go. And so then it's just a question, well, how do we let it go? Well. Sometimes we can just ignore it. Sometimes it makes more of a disturbance in the mind. 
So you have your mind telling you how to practice, and then your mind telling you that you don't need to tell me how to practice. You know, so it may be better just sometimes to ignore it. Every once in a while to investigate and to really see the view that that Dharma instruction is coming out of. You know, maybe it's still coming from this, at one point, useful position of thinking I'm an unenlightened human being who's really interested in purifying my mind. And you just sort of look at that and feel that that's a stone too. Maybe not as heavy as some of the stones, but I don't need to be identified with that point of view of being somebody who's deluded, who needs to practice hard in order to get free. I can let that go. Back to silence. Back to just letting things come and go. So yeah, I think your instincts seem right. And it's just a matter of how to skillfully... Uh, not be confused by those old habits that you purposefully set in motion, but now in this moment. Now, later they may be useful. So it's not like they're never going to be useful again. When our mind's more dense and the distractions are more negative and more persistent, then it's really good for that Dharma coach to come out and sort of exercise some willful like uh, parenting. Are you sure you want to do that? How about doing this? But when, uh, when naturally we feel more trust in the moment and more uh, trusting of that letting things be, not manifesting as a self even in a wholesome sense, then to really go with that. You know, generally when we can practice in a more subtle way, it's unskillful not to be practicing in that way. But we don't want to get attached to that because then when things are too dense and we just can't practice even though we used to, you know, earlier in the day we were practicing like that, then uh, we can be attached and we don't want to take out the heavier equipment, (laughs) you know, that we really need to go back to the heavier equipment and whatever that might be, really using an anchor in a more rigorous way, Um, you know, there are many of those old tools, noting, yeah, yeah, Eric. Um, question on, on the final day of retreat about daily life practice. Um, I've been having the, the thought about this evening arising, I'll, I'll be at a barbecue, and there are kind of conflicting things happening. One, I'm, I'm really joyful I get to see people that I care about, um, and also I know that there'll be idle talk. <laughs> um, that's very different from what I've been experiencing in, in the last eight days. Um, and I know what my preference is. I really uh, am aversive a lot of times to kind of just topics. Um, and that's, that's something for me to see. But as I go into that, I want... I want... Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it's okay to be honest. I have this intention, I have this intention to bring... You know, a lot of this retreat has been about care and about love, independent of what I can say to people, what I can tell people, what I can, whatever, um, and just sort of bring that out in a simple way. And I'm aware, at least in my cosmology, of how odd and inappropriate it is to just sort of like, I, I really care about you, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and 
and I, that's the world I want to live in, where we do all just gather and we're just like, isn't it wonderful here to be together and smell the grilling meat? <laughs> that's the world I want to set in motion, so there's a part of me that's a little obstinate that's like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> and so, you know, and even I feel joyful, even if I say that, like that yeah. possibility. Yeah. We can get attached to our uh, refined states of mind and attached to metta. That doesn't mean that what you said is wrong. Um, it just means that uh, any fixation is a stone. You know, any evaluation of the mind in terms of good and bad is a way. And the, the thing is, the, ex, the uh, external manifestation of our circumstances doesn't matter that much, ultimately. What really matters is the heart, the mind. And we can be in a generous, uh, light, loving place and be talking about the twins, or be talking about Mitt Romney's bump, or lack of bump in the polls, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Won't be long. The, one of the three-month retreats I was on was the one with Gore and, and George Bush, and they were on retreat with you? Yeah. <laughs> they had their own kind of retreat that fall. <laughs> and, yeah. And they said that, the staff at IMS said that, for those of you who want to know the results of the election, we'll put a note on the bulletin board, and you can lift it up oh. and read it if you want. <laughs> and uh, so they told us the whole group. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to look, but I noticed that, you know, the day after is two days after, there was no note up about the election. <laughs> and of course, probably everybody in the retreat, all 120 of us, realized, like, well, that's weird. <laughs> and then uh, finally, somebody in the question and answer session, uh, which they had like every other day, asked Steve Armstrong, you know, about that. And then, you know, he, he said exactly the wrong thing. It would have been hard to answer it. He said, you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was interesting to work with. Uh, Linda, and then Spruce. Why is it so complicated? And what about people who just 
you know, um, you know, whatever, you know, someone who lives in the deep Amazon, do they need to know this or do they already know this because they, they haven't got all the cultural crap, you know, it just made me think, okay, what do you do, or here's a practical question, what, what does a person do when, when everything starts to get confusing and it can irritating and just makes me think, you know, this is just kind of ridiculous. You know, this is kind of like, you know, we're all so worried about, okay, are we doing this right, are we doing mm -hmm. this right, and doing this right, and you know, meanwhile, the world's out there, you know, looking for our love or our help, or, you know, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So it's kind of two questions, like, what the heck is this? And the other question is, that, you know, you don't have answers. <laughs> the other question is, practically, what do you do when you're on a retreat and you're just kind of going, okay, you know, my mind's dropped it, but my body still, still is holding on to, what does that mean? You know what I mean? What, what, should I just kind of like, let it go? Should I take a break? What would that mean? And yeah. But this is so. Just remember this one thing, which is it's all about suffering, mm -hmm. and dropping or the end of suffering, and not not in a big cosmological sense, like right here in my body, my heart, my mind. And so, you know, in terms of evaluating, like God, what should I do? I seem to be in knots, and everything I do seems to add to it. Well, we have with awareness, we can just see that like study that as a science what can I do that relieves or doesn't make it that much worse you know so we're just taking care of ourselves in the most pragmatic direct way it's really pragmatic and that's the key is that all these teachings if we're not taking these teachings and reflecting on them so that they're useful in this very pragmatic way then we're all we're doing is collecting more stuff which can be heavy you know, because we always, it's like all that stuff in our closet. We feel we should be doing something with it, but we're not. So not only do we have all that stuff in our closet, we have all that guilt about not doing stuff with that stuff in the closet. And it can be the same with Dharma stuff. we got all this knowledge we've acquired and thought about and worked on, but we don't know what to do. So it's really like, well, what can I do? So the first thing we want to be aware of the heart or this, so that at least we'll know if we're making things tighter or looser. Without that basic intuitive sense of the heart, like where suffering resides in us, if we don't know what suffering is, the first noble truth, we're just blind and generally adding more than we're releasing in life. So we have to have a sense of what suffering is, what stress is. Because that is our barometer for then evaluating what we do with the mind, what we do with the body. If we don't have that, we're literally blind. So I think that's, that's the ticket, is to keep grounding it in the heart. And that, that, the practice never needs to be more sophisticated than watching the heart, the place where suffering and happiness occurs, watching it with compassion, and just making connections, correlations between what the mind is doing and what happens to the heart. And how, when the mind 
relates in certain ways, acts in certain ways, the heart gets bound up, feels really heavy. When the mind relates and acts in other ways, the heart releases. So we're just studying the heart. We're letting it be our guide to, you know, about the value or the benefit of our actions. And most important, what we find the more we watch the heart is that the view of the mind has the most impact on what happens to the heart, suffering and not suffering. The view ultimately turns out to be the most important or the easiest way to harm and help the heart is by looking at what view, what the quality of the intentions in the mind. Now that's subtle. You know, what we would like to say, see is, you know, do I feel better living in Minneapolis or in California, you know? But it's not as much about whether we're in Minneapolis or California. It's about the quality of mind when we're in Minneapolis versus the quality of mind when we're in California. And maybe I can have that quality of mind that I had in California when I'm in Minneapolis. Maybe it's not about the external. So that's why that part makes it a little confusing because we may know when we're suffering, but we may look at uh, the more gross reason for why we're suffering and not get at the more subtle reason. So part of the teachings is not just to notice the heart, but in terms of what's at play in the moment, it's not just what you said to me, it's the intention in my mind, it's the view, like I'm taking what you said personally. That actually is more harmful than what you said to me. So we have to make that distinction that what's really affecting the heart isn't so much the external circumstances as it is the view that's interpreting the external circumstances. So we're just watching what the mind is doing and how it affects the heart. What the mind is doing and how it affects the heart. With the presumption that suffering, the cause of suffering is already here. It's not out there. So we're looking at right here, what is the mind doing and how does it affect the heart? And when we're confused, then, you know, it's like we sit still, basically. We lie down and we say to ourselves, you know, out of compassion, I'm really going to pay attention to everything I do, the way the mind is, and see how it affects things. So at least I don't make things worse because it really hurts right now. Yes, Bruce. You might have answered my question. Let me ask it in In the practice interview we had, you offered a practice suggestion of me asking the question, what is the mind And but not answer it. And, and so I've been asking that question. Really, I've only been doing this for a short time, but it's sort of like, okay, I'm asking the question, now it's almost like I'm holding my breath. Okay, I'm not supposed to answer the question. Uh, it's like, okay, I just asked the question. <laughs> yeah, and then it's just sort of like the void. Like, it's sort of, yeah, I, I feel kind of, I think I'm trying to, well, not I think, I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. It's more simple than that. Yeah, yeah and, and it's feeling complicated. And, and then I'll just go to what, whatever I notice. I mean, what I've been then doing after I pause 
respectfully to not answer the questions <laughs> that, that, that I notice, you know, just how, how it's feeling, attractive, spacious, or... Or even that awkward silence, you know, is something being known. So what we're doing, you know, and you just have to find a way to prompt the mind if you need to prompt the mind. You just want to acknowledge that the mind is already knowing. It's already seeing. It's already hearing. It's already aware of thoughts or it's thoughting, and those thoughts can be known. So the mind is already sensitive. It's already sensing in all of these six different ways. And the question is, can we know what the mind is sensing? Can we be reflectively knowing that the mind is knowing? And it's not hard, actually. It's because it's so simple and uh, omnipresent, we don't feel it's useful to notice that the mind is knowing. So that's really the issue. That's what we're prompting is to um, remind the mind that it is knowing right now. It is sensing. It is present right now. Instead of trying to be present, we're noticing that the mind can't help but be present. But let's be aware that it's present. Yeah. But it's tricky. So I totally get it. I know exactly that experience from my own practice where, you know, I'll prompt it, but I get confused by the prompting, and I forget to notice that that confusion is something being known. We have to end it here. I know there are a lot of questions, but I think that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, can it be okay? So uh, there's some interviews now. We have about 30. Let's do 30 minutes and start to sit, Eric, at 10.05. So who's ever ringing the call back bell, just do it five minutes later than you would otherwise. And then let's end the sit at five minutes to 11. So that way there would be time for a little stretch break and Jana and and some of the others can get us in a nice circle. And right at 11, we'll try to start the closing circle. Okay, anything else we should announce? (laughs) Sounds good? Great. So we'll see each other all that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.